Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Sam Goldman. For the first time on the podcast, we are going to be talking about Witt Stillman's Metropolitan. Please, Sam, introduce yourself before we turn to Witt Stillman and the past elites of America. Well, thank you for the invitation, Titus. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Some of your uh, audience may already know me. Um, The majority perhaps do not. I am Sam Goldman. I teach political science at George Washington University, where I have a couple of administrative positions, including running a freshman honors program called Politics and Values. I am also the literary editor of Modern Age, a conservative quarterly published by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Sam, let's turn to Whitstillman and Metropolitan. At the ACF, we've already done podcasts about a number of the Whitstillman movies, especially Last Days of Disco and Damsels in Distress. But now we're turning to his debut and the movie that got him all the way to an Oscar nomination to Cannes, of course, and made his reputation. I watched the movie again today with my wife, and along with being delighted about the witty remarks, I was also struck how again and again, simple remarks seem to be statements of principles for the preppy class, the urban haute bourgeoisie, as it's called at some point in the movie, that Witt Stillman is dealing with. That's a rare thing in a movie to be able to convey through dialogue principles of sociological abstraction or moral intensity. I turned to you, therefore, to discuss the social class and the elites of America as they were and as they passed away. I thought you are the man to talk to about this matter. Yes. And before discussing the plot, since you mentioned your wife, I should also mention that when I was first dating the woman who became my wife, I asked or possibly compelled her to watch this movie with me. And she hated it so much that I think she considered breaking up with me. So although (laughs) all turned out well in the end, I do blame Witt Stillman for nearly preemptively ending my marriage, which in itself I think could be a plot element in one of his films. Um, (laughs) So the plot of Metropolitan as I think with many comedies of manners, which is the genre to which it belongs, is quite straightforward. The central character is a Princeton student, Tom Townsend, who has an upper-class background, but has been partly impoverished by the divorce of his parents, who attends by chance one of the debutante balls that were, and to some extent, still are held in December in New York. And at the ball, he falls by chance in with a group of contemporaries who are distantly known to him through college and prep school circles, but who are not close friends. This is a group known as the Sally Fowler Rat Pack because they spend their uh, evenings before and after these balls at the apartment of Sally Fowler or of her parents on the Upper East Side. And there really isn't much more to the plot than that. There is a sort of nominal romantic interest. Tom is presented as having an abiding, um, I won't say obsession, but an abiding interest in a former girlfriend, Serena Slocum. 
And this interest blinds him to the interest in him entertained by one of the other members of the Sally Fowler Rat Pack, Audrey Rouget. Again, as in many comedies of of manners, there is less a plot in the sense of major events than a series of social encounters and, and conversations as these characters dance around each other for about an hour and a half. Yeah, the movie is a Christmas holiday setting and has a kind of compactness for that reason. Events or episodes rather build up without leading to the big event we might consider. It's adjacent to romantic comedy, and yet there is no marriage to speak of. There's only a hint of love at the end. Aside from the fact that the event does not come up, and as you say, there are no big events. There are some conversations and some confrontations. It's people mostly talking, sitting, and sometimes running around. It's an incredibly civilized picture in that sense. But it also has a a sort of modernist tinge, precisely because the thing that should be happening isn't happening. These young people who seem in some sense childish, but in another way, they are adults. They're all college graduates and they're about to go on with their lives. They're not sure what they will be doing with their lives. And that somehow goes together with the larger situation. Talk comes a couple of times to everything happening around us. Things are changing. They feel that they are adrift, not just because they are young Americans in their early 20s, but also because what they were brought up to expect, the debutante season, these balls, these parties, which are both very exclusive and in another sense, very isolated. Partly they're so childish because nobody really pays a lot of attention to them and nobody is really looking forward to them. They are not important in America. They are, in some strange sense, both Upper East Side, except Tom was Upper West Side, and completely unimportant. And I think that makes them seem even more innocent than they are because they can be honest about their confusion. They are largely not interested in fashions or poses. And aside from this winning attitude, there is a kind of a binding melancholy. Right. Is the passing of the class and milieu to which they belong. And one of the things that's interesting about the movie and that I think contributes to its continuing popularity, it was released, I believe, 30 years ago, is the historical uncertainty of the setting. So if you pay close attention to the references in the conversation, it's pretty clear that the world it's depicting belongs sometime in the early 1970s. But from what I understand, they couldn't afford for the production period costumes or sets. So the movie looks as if it's occurring more or less when it was filmed in the late 80s, but it's really depicting a period about 20 years earlier. And that gives it a a wonderful, almost dreamlike, insulated quality, which, whether it was intentional or not, depicts and reflects the isolation of the character Um, not just their social isolation, they are a sliver of a sliver of society, not just rich young men and women who live on the Upper East Side, but those who embrace some of the historical trappings of their background. And also it's enclosed in its temporal setting over a period of about two weeks of a winter vacation. 
So in all of these ways, it creates the sense of a sort of time capsule or bubble that is not quite of our world and wasn't even when the film was released 30 years ago. And that is extraordinarily successful in evoking the feelings of confusion, of anxiety, and of lostness that the characters seem to experience. Yeah, I think you're entirely right about this. There's some correlative of how these characters experience themselves and how we look at them. They're puzzling, pleasing for the most part, but puzzling and in a way foreign. Partly it's because of this oddity of manners, the debutante season. But I think it's not just that. They are frank, they're recognizably American, but you would not see even movies or TV where people behave this way. Certainly not, of course, 20-year-olds. They're odd because they behave with some degree of propriety. And that's a view of America you don't get in cinema. And perhaps Wood Stillman only got away with it because there are so many jokes and there are certain of the scandals of young people in the story to give it enough spice and make it seem less like a drawing room story. Yeah, and one of the sort of programmatic statements to which you referred a little bit earlier is the attempt by the characters to insist that they are American. One of them, probably the most memorable of the bunch, Nick, who's played by Chris Eigman, announces that he detests the titled aristocracy. And the implication, of course, is that he belongs to the untitled natural aristocracy, which is a classically American Jeffersonian idea, but one that has become very difficult to pronounce over the last 40 or 50 years. And when it is discussed, can only be considered ironically. And one of the things that is striking about this film, and a reason that I think many people don't like it, is its rejection of irony. There is an openness and sincerity to the characters that isn't exactly innocence, but I think you're right that we can only perceive it as innocence because for us, irony and skepticism and distance have become the only way of understanding maturity. To be mature means to be disillusioned or unillusioned. These characters are not shy in their ideals or illusions, which come in various kinds. From Tom's romantic socialism, he proclaims himself at one point to be a, a follower of Fourier, to Audrey's romantic idealism, her hope for the kind of romantic relationship that she's read about in 19th century novels. Yeah, you're right. And perhaps there's a connection between these two things. These people live in a very isolated world, and at the same time, they are oddly open, unguarded. Perhaps it is a requirement, in fact, if you want to have young people who are unguarded in this way, that they should have the kind of limit to their world and their behavior. I think to some extent, this is what certain kinds of colleges used to try to do. So it's not entirely an alien experience, but of course, after the 60s, it did become an alien experience. 
Yes, yes, I think that's that's exactly right. And that brings us back to this question of the historical and sociological setting of the film. So if it's right that the movie is set more or less in the early 70s, then these characters belong to the last generation of Americans who were products of the old Protestant establishment and institutions from churches to boarding schools to certain universities themselves that were quite intentionally closed society set off from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And as those institutions opened up gradually, I think beginning with the Second World War, the people who had been formed by them felt themselves exposed and adrift. And in a strange way, it's only within the confines of this sort of art where you can get a view of this transformation without acknowledging the immense moral force of American democracy. These young people are adrift in America, but it has not yet washed over them. The New York they inhabit has not imposed on them behavior, mannerisms, or speech different from what they grew up with. One assumes this is the end, even for them. They will have to live in America after all. And so you could say that the whole movie is about how they will enter into this condition of ordinary Americans. And I think that is the connection to The Last Days of Disco, which you said you've discussed on other podcasts, which seems to be set about 10 years later. One of the things that The Last Days of Disco depicts is the completion of the democratic revolution in that characters who have a relatively similar background, and indeed some of the same characters do make cameo appearances, have been reassimilated into mainstream post-war American life. And they are no longer hanging out in black and white tie in Park Avenue drawing rooms, but they're going downtown to spend their evenings at a discotheque. Yeah, exactly. In Last Days of Disco, the social milieu is the disco. In Metropolitan, it's the debutante balls. And that tells you a lot about the change in the interim. Wood Stillman is remarkable for making such an effort to chronicle the life of this social set and to think through what these people believed in and what they wanted and why it is that they were so confused as America changed since so many of their all-American principles were fulfilled. And yet when they were fulfilled, it left them behind. It's perhaps what's so funny about them. As I said, these young people, you see them, they are not all that unusual. That is to say, you would not see them espouse the beliefs that you would find in other parts of the world. They are not unusual in the sense in which the Amish are unusual in the middle of America, or perhaps even, let's say, Mormons. And yet they are a part. This transformation of a kind of American aristocracy from the East Coast into American democracy seems to be what's chronicled in these stories. And perhaps it's precisely because they are so young and also at the end of an era, that is to say they've been educated in prep schools and such, but they, will not, they don't feel like they will be inheriting positions or on the other hand, be expected to live up to whatever the purposes of that education were. This absence of a future makes them unusually honest. When they reflect on their condition, they can do so, as it were, without judging it in light of those purposes that the prep school class used to have to serve. Yes, and one of the recurring themes in the film is their criticism of 
their parents whom they recognized as having failed or refused to uphold the institutions that they inherited. They know that for their generation, there is no longer any choice. The die is cast in the direction of egalitarian democracy. But they notice, and I think resent their parents for having had a choice and having chosen, if not wrongly necessarily, then having chosen thoughtlessly, not understanding what was at stake. Yeah, that's a very good point. A couple of the boys, at least, are products of divorce. The protagonist, Tom Townsend, the divorce of his parents and his losing any sort of relationship with his father is some part of the plot and seems to speak to why he is a Fourierist, why he has a socialist view of things. After all, he is running away from a family that isn't working anymore. Community might look very good in the circumstances. And since he is abandoning his social class, communism of a kind, that is to say an egalitarian life, might again look very good, precisely for its contrast. He is supposed to be the one who is most like us. He is the one who asks the question that we are asking. What is a dead ball? What are these people up to? Why do they do what they do? He hasn't seen these things either. He refuses to be part of these things. And he is nevertheless drawn into them for the same reason we are. There's something attractive and winsome in these young people. As you say, part of it is they have a certain clarity. At its ugliest, it's the Nick Smith character. You mentioned Chris Eigman, who tends to tell the ugly truths in with Stillman movies. He appeared in the first three ones, and he tends to be the one who says the ugly truths that need saying, but that couldn't be acknowledged within propriety. He is also a product of divorce, and in his case too, it seems to have made him in a certain way wild. But whereas Tom has decided that he's going to have to join the future, somehow the ideals of mankind, egalitarianism, he doesn't even take cabs. He takes public transportation. He's a man of the people, at least in aspiration. You know, that appears in Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. Two different generations of wasps, the younger man who becomes corrupt, he doesn't take public transportation. His old father insists on doing so as a matter of pride. This is true of Tom Townsend as well. His egalitarianism is, as you said, romantic. He is proud of himself in some way for believing what he believes and acting in an egalitarian way. He doesn't live like other people do because, well, that's how people live. He does so out of choice as a sign of individualism, humorously enough. But nevertheless, that blindness to himself, to his own arrogance, is part of what makes Tom Townsend pleasant and decent. He's not haughty. He becomes friends with this other kid of divorce, Nick Smith, who is all of these bad things. He is haughty. As you say, he claims his natural aristocracy, and he treats everybody else badly. Even these, or especially these debutants, feel like he's condescending to them. And they are dealing with the dissolution of their families, not only of their class, but Nick seems to take a different view. He is almost a reactionary. He seems to insist on proprieties he doesn't believe in, on forms he doesn't believe in, because somehow he feels he's inherited them and they should be kept up. Well, in a scene that many viewers remember, Nick laments the disuse of detachable collars, which had fallen out of fashion not only in the period the film depicts, but 40 years earlier than that. And he explains why he thinks this is a disaster, a failure to make an effort. And Tom says, 
I think you're talking about a lot more than detachable collars here. And Nick says, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. It's a very gentle form of reaction. But Nick demonstrates how at certain points a sort of conservatism or traditionalism has to become reaction because it becomes self-conscious and a matter of will. It becomes individualist rather than being continuous participation in living customs and institutions. Yeah, that's a very good point. And of course, Nick Smith is so interesting because he's somebody immediately recognizable, say, from Twitter. Not just because he's a <laughs> troll, but because he's all about return. He's all about a kind of traditionalism of which he has little experience and for which he is not fit precisely because he is so argumentative and offensive. You can't have traditionalism if people don't get along, if they don't have a sense of community or a shared way of life. And so a movie that seems very outdated in one way has turned out to be very prophetic about an important part of conservatism, artistically, culturally, intellectually, in the very online digital era. I think it is an indication of decline that a Nick Smith today would almost certainly spend a lot of his time on social media. That's right. <laughs> But we've talked about Tom and Nick. We should also talk about Charlie, who is a less clearly drawn character, but is also the most reflective and analytic, the one who introduces the term urban haute bourgeoisie for which Stillman has become famous and which is immediately abbreviated by Nick to UB. Yeah, this is, in a way, the more interesting of the male characters, Charlie, because he combines a certain personal shyness and sensitive insistence on proprieties, whereas these other two young men are quite casual and willing to break propriety, with, as you say, a very theoretical mind. Now, it's true of the movie as a whole that the men have abstract ideas and the women concern themselves with their practical concerns. I'm not sure that this would pass muster, as it were, with critics or with opinion today, probably didn't in 1990 either, but this was the traditional way the characters talk about Tolstoy and about Jane Austen. This is largely what you would also see in those novels, that men are given to abstractions, you could say like we are, and uh, women are not. And it is this most proper of the three young men, Charlie, who has this complete sense of doom. You could say it's precisely because he's a decent moral guy, part of a social order that has disappeared, that he must believe that they are doomed. I'm considering that. Why do you say that because he is a member of this order that he must believe that they are doomed? Is it because unlike Nick, he is too decent to make the gesture of defiance? Yeah, I think that's a very important part of it. He's not willing to break with any proprieties, but he has experienced and he's obviously reflected more than anybody else on the fact that there is no future. When you're in a situation where you are not willing to break with propriety, but you can no longer believe that propriety leads to anything good, you have experienced the paradox of morality as such. Morality is supposed to involve something greater than any of us. It is not the same thing as self-interest, but it's not supposed to lead to sacrifice or suicide either. Well, this is certainly the paradox of ruling classes in decline. I think there is a fairly consistent and understandable pattern in which elites or ruling classes are founded by fairly rough and tumble sorts. You don't acquire wealth and power by decorous means, usually. Over the generations, power is 
softened, to use Burke's word, softened by religion, softened by custom, softened by morality. But in doing so, it becomes very difficult for the people who inherit wealth and power to defend themselves. Charlie seems, and I hadn't thought of it in quite this way before, almost a Tocquevillian figure who cannot fully endorse the triumph of democracy, which he regards as inevitable, but concludes that it is, in some cosmic sense, more just and sees as his role, or perhaps even as a kind of therapy, to understand why the decline of his class and society was inevitable, rather than like the reactionary to try to reject or overturn that outcome, however ineffectual those efforts may be. Yeah, I think you're right. At his deepest, Charlie is the only one who has this Tocquevillian view of things. And he's, of course, one of the two young men who makes it nearly to the end. There is, as you said, an entire rat pack or brat pack of these young people, but they weed out throughout the course of the movie until there's only four of them left and then only two who might form a couple, but in fact are not going to form a couple he is one of the two young men left at the end. And in one of these late scenes when Charlie and Tom don't really have anything to do or anywhere to go anymore, they meet a member of their set of their class for drinks. Charlie's invested in getting that guy to say from the experience that he himself as a 20-something lacks that they are doomed. The other guy says, we're not doomed, we just failed. Right. And that is a note, I think, of the cyclical character of these experiences. So on the one hand, there's a linear story of the decline of the urban haute bourgeoisie, but there's also a gentler and more personal story about the recurrence of a certain kind of experience, which is common among young adults of all classes and backgrounds, and replays itself generation after generation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think this is also partly why the story of these young people is so interesting. You're right that we live in a way in a more debased culture and a more guarded culture accordingly, but I think people would still recognize what it means to have the questions of youth with respect to love and friendship. I wish we had for this conversation a younger person, ideally one watching the film for the first time, because I would be very interested to know how someone of roughly the same age as the characters reacts to this depiction today. That is a worthwhile experiment to conduct, and I do know some young 20-somethings who I will encourage to see this and see how things turn out. I think you have to have a certain temperament. If you're somehow given to reading Jane Austen, you will, of course, love pretty much everything which Stillman does, but that's perhaps not a very widespread taste. Still, there's got to be some young set. I've met a young college kid, on the conservative side at least, who love with Stillman, of course. In fact, it's become a type of person. More populist conservatives loathe conservatives who like with Stillman almost as much as they <laughs> loathe those who like Evelyn Waugh, who was, of course, even more declinist and, in some sense, reactionary. The comparison between Stillman and Waugh is revealing, because I think it shows how fundamentally American Stillman is. And I think 
also reflects well on him. He has none of the bitterness and resentment that I don't think is the dominant note in Waugh, but is certainly a part of Waugh's gestalt. And that may be why Waugh continues to appeal to more defiantly reactionary types. Stillman's perspective is very gentle. Yeah, I think that's right. Can't really watch with Stillman movies and then feel that there is somehow an entire inheritance that was betrayed, that you've lost. You can't have that sense of pride that you get when you feel that there is much that you were denied. And maybe that's a difference between American conservatism or traditionalism and European variants. I can understand how one might look at the great cathedrals of Europe and feel cheated of a great inheritance. It's a more open question and one that the characters in Metropolitan ask what the WASP establishment produced that was really worth conserving. It was not entirely without merit, or at least that's the argument of the film, but it did not generate the peaks of human civilization in the way that the European Ancien Regime at least arguably did. And this too is consistent with Tocqueville's description of democracy. In America and under democratic conditions, the lows are higher, There is less outright misery or degradation than he observed in Europe under the vestiges of the Ancien Regime, but the highs are also lower, and there is less to inspire than the European past could offer. I think that's right. You see this, I think, in all Stillman movies, even the cultural references do not go that far high or, of course, that far low. There is nothing of the sorted, little of the demotic, but there is very little of the exalted. The books they talk about or that you see in Metropolitan are Jane Austen novels, which are an achievement, but they're not the highest achievement of its kind. I think it's Townsend who has the decline of the West Spengler on his bedstand at some point. That's some kind of achievement, but it's not a height of German thought. He mentions Thorsten Veblen or Fourier. These are, again, not the heights of sociological or philosophical reflection on society. That's a judgment that's not unique to Stillman. Henry Adams, who was one of the great literary representatives of the old WASP elite, you find a sort of similar judgment when later in his life he was seeking a form of exaltation or inspiration that he thought America didn't provide, he too turned to the European medieval past, partly out of a sort of patrician romanticism, which has somewhat psychological origins, but also, I think, in a way consistent with Tocqueville's suggestion that America really is a thoroughly bourgeois society, and your options range from the high bourgeoisie represented by these characters or a figure like Adams to the low bourgeoisie. And there's much to be said for such a society, but it can never be thrilling in the way that societies devoted to more elevated virtues 
but also perhaps it avoids the kind of cruelty to which other societies are susceptible. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And we get certain hints of that in the dialogue and the relationships in the story. This very funny, very acerbic guy, Nick Smith, does behave to people with a certain cruelty that follows from his self-delusion of grandeur. Even at this level, you already see that to achieve such a sensitivity, to have such high demands, to do some kind of violence to people who do not live up to them. At some point, he notices that he's run afoul. He says, even a group like this has standards, apparently, and I have failed to meet them. Alan Bloom says somewhere, I think in the closing of The American Mind, that, of course, it's possible to reject democracy in America, but in order to do so, you have to become either a kook or a crank. And he mentions Henry Adams among those who were able to maintain their criticism in a consistent way, but only at the cost of becoming cranky. And Nick seems to be a crank in training. Yes, indeed. He gets this exit that is quite melancholy. His friends, well, one of his friends at any rate sees him off to the train station. All of a sudden, music swells in a romantic mood. But he's also disappearing into the night, and uh, there is every reason to believe that as he loses touch with his youthful school friends, he is not going to have the kind of affection that might restrain that harshness that's growing inside of him and that bitterness. And indeed, he's the one who forces a conflict and brings very ugly and sordid things in the middle of his circle of friends in the name of standards of morality. It's, again, a very telling thing that this guy who is the most judgmental and whose judgment is right, you have to say that uh, just because he's an asshole doesn't mean he's wrong. He judges one of the young men whom the ladies admire to be a scoundrel in the European fashion, hiding behind aristocracy, uh, ugliness, sordidness. And he judges rightly. And nevertheless, he has to bring to these young women all sorts of very ugly things. Isn't that the definition of a crank, always to be right in the same way, but also always to be wrong in the same way? That's how I think of cranks, at least in the sense that Bloom was describing. It's not that they're wrong exactly. It's that they have just one idea that they uphold, whether it is right or wrong in any particular situation. Yeah, that seems right. That, again, gets to this question of the friendship and the love budding among these young people. They're supposed to learn, to some extent, how to deal with each other without adult supervision. They're in their parents' apartments, in the institutions that were, at least for a while, guaranteed by their parents. But they are unsupervised. They are supposed to deal with things for themselves and therefore to learn how to treat each other. And there, perhaps you see, is the most American side of things altogether. There, a kind of chaos develops when once the manners of the debutante season fall away. They don't know how to deal with each other. They don't know how to hold on to each other, how to hold each other accountable, whatever it might mean for them to hold on to their friendship. Yeah, it's not exactly a state of nature, but it poses the question of how to sustain personal relationships without forms to govern our interactions. 
And in some ways, that is the essential American question, because the recurring and overwhelming, if not universal, tendency of American life for at least 200 years has been to erode forms and structures that place us into predetermined roles and to ask us to conduct our own lives for ourselves. And that has certain pleasures and opportunities and rewards, but is also very, very hard and imposes a high cost on people who, for whatever reason, find themselves unable to exercise autonomy. Yeah, I think it's another way in which the movie is way more true to our times than it was, say, in 1990. I would guess it's much harder for Americans in 2021 to go about dating and dealing with all these sorts of teenager, young adult things than it was 30 or 50 years ago. And at some point, it's no longer just a matter of some people are sensitive. In the case of the movie, these are all canaries in a coal mine because they were brought up that way. They were made sensitive. But I don't think it's just that. I think it becomes a broader problem. I think the confusion can spread out in society because, as you say, the forms are not there. Institutions are not there either. And yet people have to deal with each other and they feel all sorts of inchoate desires as well as fears. It may be another conversation for another occasion, but I, I sometimes think that there's a way in which movements that people describe as political correctness or wokeness or with other terms are attempts to compensate for the loss of some of those forms and institutions. So, you know, it can be puzzling and people often are puzzled to find young people who are supposed to be the bastions of freedom, who want only to do their thing and to express themselves, clamoring for administrative intervention in their social lives, as if they want someone to tell them what to do, which is contrary to everything we've been told about young people for the last 75 years. But I sometimes think that the real cause of that is that they yearn for clear expectations and shared norms and are seeking to find them in the only source of authority that they know, which is the educational and medical bureaucracy. This film occurs at a transitional period in those developments when the last of the old-fashioned standards for personal and sexual conduct were disappearing, but the anarchic consequences of that had not yet become evident. And I think it's those consequences that are one of the factors that is provoking the remoralization or the attempted remoralization of social and cultural life that we are experiencing today. Yes, I agree with that entirely. Whatever the deep political implications would be of something like the Great Awakening, it's impossible not to notice if you see these people that they're damaged goods. And in many cases, it's hard to blame them since they are young. After all, the sordid conflict in the movie would, in 2021, easily be a Me Too scandal. And of course, it's not entirely obvious that that reprehensible young man shouldn't be punished for treating some woman in a terrible way. 
that might, in fact, have legal implications. And then it would be very difficult to say, okay, which part of this is private life and people should mind their own business? And which part of this has a public character? And although it involves young 20-somethings, it is nevertheless a concern for an institution, maybe even the police. It's hard to set those limits precisely because of the great freedom Americans enjoy or suffer from, depending on the case. Right. So on one side of the change is the old norm of gentlemanliness, which these characters try ineffectually and somewhat absurdly to uphold. Even though they take it seriously, they understand that nobody else takes it seriously. On the other side of this development is the present demand for legal and administrative intervention, not in the name of morality, or not morality in the old-fashioned sense, but usually in the name of safety and health. And in between, from sometime in the middle 1960s through Sometime, I would say, in the early 2000s, there is this period of really unusual and unsettling freedom, which to many people, to at least some people, was a great boon and certainly had valuable consequences for artistic creativity and in other fields, but also turned out for many people and perhaps most people to be personally intolerable. Yeah, we have ended up in a situation where we've made incredibly public statements in an authoritative way from lowering the voting age in the early 70s down to whatever one may consider the most impressive or outrageous Supreme Court decisions of recent years. And all these public authoritative statements are supposed to change stuff about private life, about society. And indeed, all these public movements have transformed society. It is not the case that young 20-somethings today are what they were like 60, 70, 80 years ago. Generations of divorce on the one hand and young people not marrying on the other hand. All of these things are obviously a situation that has simply never occurred before in American history. That should all be paid attention to. It would be great to have somebody like Whit Stillman now talking about what 20-somethings are like and why perhaps precisely because these changes have been made in a public authoritative way, there is no such artistic treatment of them. In some strange way, the public and private have changed roles. It's on the one hand recognizable to see these young people in their drawing room, you know, wearing their hearts on their sleeves, not because we do it. As you said, we are very ironic and guarded and sarcastic, but because our entire public affairs are involved in this. It's not some young girl talking about experience or whether she's embarrassed of something in a drawing room. What happens is trying to change the laws for the entire country with respect to somebody's identity. I think it's not a personal matter. It's a political matter now. And there's something very upside down about that. But it still means that people have to somehow try to make sense of being a young American, dealing with all this freedom, even if it is, or especially if it is very confusing experience, there's a chaos. And there, the the standards indeed seem to have turned from a standard that you could say was essentially about the soul, like gentlemanship, to standards that are essentially about the body, safety and health above all, of course. Because it turned out that somehow what people meant by gentlemen was not sufficiently obvious, or the good of it was not sufficiently obvious, or it was not sufficiently attainable, it was not obviously democratic. And so it was simply sacrificed. 
that did not do away with the need for moral judgment and restraint. It just led all those moral impulses into this completely different avenue. This is a problem in the movie. Some of these young people want to have some self-restraint in their lives and, and don't want to have too much experience or too much honesty. Others, however, want as much honesty, experience, and freedom as they can possibly get. That's one reason the group breaks up. But of course, nowadays, we can see, as you said, that the consequences have added up. And it might be that very serious restraints are felt to be needed by young people without being able to give any account of why that might be so. It strikes me that what we have lost in all of this is what's represented by Jimmy Stewart, but particularly in the Philadelphia story, which I know is a film that Stillman knows and loves. And what Jimmy Stewart stands for in that film and also throughout his career is the possibility of the democratic gentleman who is not putting on airs, who is not a flamboyant reactionary in the way that Nick Smith is, but who nevertheless adapts and upholds what we would now call aristocratic values for a democratic society. Yeah, he plays a character who was baptized Macaulay, but everybody, of course, calls him Mike. And then he's both. As you say, he has a certain idealism, a certain chivalry to him, a certain artistic ambition, and a certain political pride as a Democrat, as an American. And uh, I agree with you that you see how much that is missing. Perhaps precisely the gentleness of the Wood Stillman comedies points to this absence. There's never any manly character. There's never somebody who, who stands up for himself and for this sort of American way of life, not in an ostentatious or not even necessarily in a public way, but at least in such a way that you can understand that, yes, that is his character, those are his convictions. That has become absent. Do you think there are any more recent artists than Stillman who address some of these questions successfully? Not in a comic mood, I don't think. There are very interesting American artists, men, say, in their 40s now, who deal with manliness a lot, and even certain aspects of gentlemanship in America, or male stoicism, at least, like Taylor Sheridan and Jeff Nichols. But of course, those are all about being Western, that aspect of America, manly freedom. Back in the East, no, I don't really know anybody. It may be no longer a dying breed, but dead. I think it might be. I think that the elegiac tones of Metropolitan are, in a way, fairly well-deserved. It was a movie out of time at the time. And I think for good reason, this odd combination of all-American honesty and ideals of propriety, of morality, of personal attainment have, with respect to character, I mean, yeah, who makes those movies, writes those books, makes such music or any such things? Which doesn't mean it isn't true. <laughs> Exactly. And perhaps that's a great note to end on. This young character, Charlie, who is so moral but feels he's doomed, says to Tom Townsend, well, you know, Fourierism, this sort of utopian communitarian socialism has failed. And Tom asks him, well, it's true that the community isn't there, it disappeared, but does that make it a failure? That is, of course, true of the urban odd bourgeoisie or the wasps of America as a whole. In some sense, they failed. They failed of their political purpose or of their domination of certain institutions. But it's not obvious that they altogether failed since their influence is still felt. And it's not obvious that they failed in the sense that they deserve to fail. 
maybe there is a lot worthwhile about what these people stood for. And I think that's why we find the Whit Stillman movie so attractive. This certainly seems to be a moment of, if not widespread, then fairly intense nostalgia for the old WASP establishment, which I think distinguishes the present from the period when the film was made. At that time, it was still real enough that it was worth getting angry at or satirizing, as I think you see in Bonfire of the Vanities, which you mentioned a few minutes ago. Now that it is truly all gone, it maybe becomes more possible to appreciate its virtues unironically. And in that respect, Metropolitan is maybe even more of our time than the moment when it was made. Yes, yes, Sam, I think so. Watching it again today, as I said, with one eye or or at least a nagging thing in the back of my mind about what conservatism is like online, the young generation of conservatives, and also conservatives who are not young but are behaving that way because they feel unrestrained on Twitter. Uh, (laughs) There's very much of what you see in Metropolitan that you see in also these day-to-day occurrences. So I think Stillman hit on some aspect of American longing for the certainty that one is the right kind of person that uh, has become much more urgent than it used to be, but seems to be just part of American restlessness. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm glad that we have finally moved from Twitter chats to a long conversation where I get to hear your thoughts and try to uh, respond to them. And we should do this again. Yes, it would be a pleasure whether to discuss Jimmy Stewart or Tom Wolf or anything else. I'm glad that we have these shared interests because uh, I have to say, I think they're timely, but I don't see a lot of people addressing them. Well, we are not just talking about detachable collars here. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Since we're not reactionary, we have a good stab at achieving something here. And I think that's one with Stillman lesson. If you have a love of something that's sort of nostalgic, do your best to make it real and see if anything comes of it. And he's got a career in the movies and that's not nothing. Indeed. All the best meanwhile, Sam. Thanks again for joining. Thank you for having me.